As we continue our Advent series on the book of Revelation, I have an announcement to make. I have discovered, after weeks of arduous study, the identity of the beast that was read about for us by Corrine. Are you ready for it? Drum roll, please. The identity of the beast is Donald Trump. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. No, sorry. Let me check my notes here. No, it's Joe Biden. No, that's not right. Justin Trudeau. Uh, Pierre Polyev. Nope. Elon Musk. You get where I'm going, right? Part of the problem with the book of Revelation, as I've said before, is that we so quickly rush to fill our own meanings into these very uh, provocative and even uh, difficult and frightening images. It's very easy for us to take our own political predilections and to place them upon the book of Revelation. But that's not really what John is trying to get at. More on the identity of the beast in a moment. But just to remind ourselves that the book of Revelation is precisely that. It's about revealing. It's about showing. John is not showing or revealing these things that have been shown to him to confuse us or to make the meaning of the book so difficult to the point where we don't know what's going on. Yes, at times John is himself confused and bewildered by what he is seeing, but it should not cause us to lose heart, to lose hope about the deeper meaning of Revelation, which by intent, by God's own intent, and by that of John, is to draw out the meaning of God's salvation. God's salvation that persists no matter what is happening in the world, no matter who claims to be sitting on the earthly thrones. The one who is seated on the throne in heaven is the Lord of all these things. So as we go through Revelation, the images and meanings are supposed to be very clear to us, but the clarity is not meant to be such that we put our own images and meanings into these things. Because wouldn't you know it, throughout the history of the church, there have been those that have claimed to discern the identity of the beast. And just like at the intro to my homily, the identity of the beast has variously been ascribed to the Pope, to other political and religious leaders to the time, the kind of people that were usually the cause of some sort of debate. And so it was easy to demonize one's opponents by calling them the beast, the beast that John sees in Revelation. But before we get to the beast, we have to think about the other character that John introduces, a character of tremendous power, a tremendously frightening being. Of course, that's the image of the dragon. John sees this dragon. And dragons in the popular imagination are still just that, an image that is to evoke terror and fear of sheer power of a dragon that can destroy things with its claws, its tails, its teeth, and the burning of fire. This is why in one of my favorite books, The Hobbit, Smaug the dragon is the bad guy. He makes a really good bad guy. Because of his sheer power and ferocity, he can just destroy things on a whim with his fiery breath. But we know the identity of, of this dragon. John makes it really clear to us, doesn't he? He says, 
This dragon is, were you listening? Who's the dragon? The devil, devil, Satan. That old serpent that we meet back in the beginning of Genesis, the father of lies who whispers in the ears of Adam and Eve, our human forebears, and says to them, did God really say dot, dot, dot? And the rest, you could say, is history. The human history of our brokenness, our wreckage, of the inhumanity of people toward other people. That's the reality of our fallenness. And so the dragon thinks he is something that he is not. Remember, the devil, Satan, was also named Lucifer. Lucifer means light bearer. He was an archangel created by God to be one of the ones who bore God's light. And and Satan says to God, well, to hell with you. I'm going to go do my own thing. And so we see that image between St. Michael, the archangel, and Satan. Michael, of course, is the, uh, the general of God's heavenly armies. He is victorious over Satan and his angels, which are also fallen as well. And they are cast down into hell. Now, Satan knows that the battle and the war are lost, at least when it comes to heaven. There's no way he's going to overtake Michael. There's no way that he is going to usurp God from the throne. So Satan looks around and he says, well, where can I cause the most damage? Where can I rule? Well, of course, he looks to earth. He looks to these human creatures that were created in the image of God. And he says, yes, they are fallible. They are susceptible. They are easily corruptible. I will do my work on them. And by doing my work on them, I am standing in odds with God. I know a charge against heaven will never work, but maybe, just maybe, I can mess up what God has made. And isn't that just the ongoing battle between heaven and hell, between light and dark, between God and Satan? Now, our modern age doesn't like to think in these kinds of terms, these very stark black and white good and evil. We've led ourselves to believe in the idea of the anti-hero on the one hand, right? that person who doesn't intend to do good, but does good nevertheless, but isn't exactly a moral or virtuous upstanding person, someone who is flawed in their character. And on the other hand, we have the, um, the, the bad guys who are meant to be kind of sympathetic, And maybe it's a little on the nose, but the TV show Lucifer, how many people have seen that or are aware of that, right? Satan is kind of meant to be a sympathetic character. His father, who is God, is a bit of a bastard, and so Lucifer is trying to do good. And so our modern modern sensibilities in pop culture don't know what to do with these very stark images of good and evil, because we like to color them a little bit. And so it can make us a bit uncomfortable because we say, well, who is really good? Well, I am, but everyone else really isn't. And who is really bad? Well, of course, again, it's everyone else. I'm not really that bad. And so we like to project the images of ourselves of what we would like to be onto the stories we like to tell in our culture. But the story that John has is a story that the good guys and the bad guys are very, very clear And the story that John sees is not, as I've said before, meant to be understood in a very linear fashion. I use the example of the tapestry of Bayou to describe the book of Revelation, right? It's a long, long tapestry. It it, it encapsulates 
don't know how many hundred feet, but it's a long, long thing. And so if you look at it, you can see the whole thing, but as you get closer, you can see the actual detail of the, of the embroidery and the story it tells of William the Conqueror. But when you're too close, you can't see the larger picture, and when you're so far back seeing the larger picture, it's hard to see the details. So it is with the book of Revelation. Maybe another way to put it is, how many people have seen the movie Memento? Okay, you should see it. It's a very good movie. The idea is, as the protagonist has lost his memory, and he's trying to solve the mystery of who killed his wife. But the movie actually unfolds in reverse. And so it's quite an ingenious bit of film telling, but it doesn't follow the normal progression of a movie beginning, middle, end. Just like Pulp Fiction. How many people have seen Pulp Fiction? Come on, more people have seen Pulp Fiction. You know, I'm not going to judge you up here if you've seen Pulp Fiction. It's a great movie. Pulp Fiction is kind of a circular narrative, right? The beginning is actually the end of the movie. The middle is actually the beginning, and the end is actually the middle part. That brings us right back to the beginning. I think I've got that right. Anyway, the point is, the narrative is kind of, it doesn't make sense in that normal way of beginning, middle, and end. So it is with Revelation. What John is seeing is what has been, what is, and what will be. And so what he's seeing is this ongoing battle between the devil, the dragon, and God. And God has in his, oh, he has, of course, Michael, the archangel, and all the heavenly host. But God also has these group of people that we meet and that we've talked about before, the martyrs. Those who have died professing their faith in Jesus Christ. Those who were tortured and killed because of their profession in faith, their profession of faith in Jesus Christ. They were willing to die than to turn their back on professing um, who God is in Jesus Christ. They fled, as we remember from last week, to the altar of God for protection. They refused to allow themselves to be corrupted in their faith, in what they believe. And the martyrs are important because they stand in stark contrast to this other character that we meet in Revelation 12, the beast. We've met creatures before in Revelation. We've met the angels, we've met those four creatures that stand around the throne, we've met the seraphs and the, with the six wings and the eyes everywhere, like not your typical Christmas angels that are very, you know, bright and cheerful, like these are kind of almost horrific kind of images. If you Google, um, uh, do a Google search on seraphim and angels described in the Bible, yeah, be prepared to maybe lose a little bit of sleep because they are not, again, what we think of when we have um, these Christmas card images of angels. But what we meet in the beast is something that is almost beyond description. It is indeed beastly because it cannot be categorized in any way that the way that we normally describe and understand animals, cat, dog, giraffe, elephant, etc., etc. This beast is unique. It's horrifying to look at. But what the beast symbolizes externally with the horribleness of what he looks like is meant to indicate who, what he's like internally. The beast is not a good character. The beast is not someone who is virtuous or upright, at least in the way that God looks at these things. So who is this beast? Well, John tells us who the beast is. Right at the end of the reading, it says the number of the beast is 666 or 666. And John says that's the number of a person. 
or that's the number of a human. So that's our first clue. The beast is human. Okay, still leaves a little bit to the imagination. When you came in, did you get the piece of paper with the numbers in Revelation? One person has it. Okay, if you didn't, they're in the narthex. Grab one, stick it in your Bible in Revelation. Numbers are important in Revelation. One, of course, refers to the singularity of God. God is utterly unique in the being of who God is. But God also exists in a community of three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So one and three designate God. Four is the number of creation. Because in four we have the four elemental spirits of earth and water and fire and wind. So four designates the number of creation. Seven is the number of covenant, of wholeness and holiness of God's power. God's power as we've seen in the previous books of the trumpet and the bowls and the seals. And then we have the number 12 and multiples of 12 which are about the, Israel, uh, the people of Israel and the people of the church represented by that great cloud of witnesses, 144,000. But what about this number six, repeated three times? Well, some people have suggested that it's the emperor Nero, because if you break the code, you can see that 666 means Nero. It's possible. But did John give us the numbers to be deciphered in some sort of mathematical cipher? Absolutely not. It's not an equation for us to figure out. Again, the meaning is meant to be very clear. The number six is the number of humanity. And not just the number of humanity, but the number of a broken, bruised, wounded humanity. The reality of the humanity we all inhabit now, going back to the first sin of Adam and Eve, the first sin to not believe that God is saying that what God is saying is true. The sin to make myself God, to place myself on the throne. And you know what's the worst sin of all? OPS, other people's sins. My sins are forgivable, but I'm sorry. All of your sins, you are the worst possible sinners around. Mine aren't that bad, because I have an excuse. It could have been worse. I didn't really mean it. I just couldn't help myself. Jesus told us that we have to forgive each other. In my heart, I was just following what my heart was telling me, but you all, other people's sins are the worst. That's the number six at work, you could say. It's the number of our broken humanity. And see, sin is not just about those vices that I have. It's not just about when I lose my temper, about the impure thoughts I have or about the desire to hurt my neighbor and if you know me yeah I'm I can be a vindictive person if you've hurt me I want to hurt you back but this number 666 is more than just my own personal sins and foibles and vices 666 is meant to designate our collective fallen humanity of what it means for us as a people to be broken and wounded and bruised by the devil. But isn't it just like this dragon to use that to his own devices, to turn us against ourselves, to turn us loose against our neighbor? And so 666 is the embodiment of our social and political structures as we have built them as fallen people. 
We are all responsible for the fallen condition of humanity. It's a sobering thought, especially as we approach Christmas. And so I want us to realize this with an image. It's not the only image, but it works, I think, quite powerfully because it's an image we've probably all seen. It's the image of Hitler at the Nuremberg rallies. You've seen the pictures, I'm sure, in history books. How did a Christian nation, or an ostensibly Christian nation, follow someone into the most despicable and hateful crimes of trying to exterminate a whole race and races of people? What are they doing at the Nuremberg rally? They are worshiping. They have cheers. They have a salute all worked out to show their allegiance and their devotion to this man, Hitler, who would lead them out of all their problems, who would lead them out of their financial woes, who would restore the greatness of the motherland back to the German people. It's not just Hitler, though, is it? We've seen in our own modern era groups of people of all political parties and for all social causes gathered around flags, gathered around charismatic people who are calling them and whipping them up to follow the cause, to restore justice, to restore all these things that have been taken. Who is the beast? We are. We are. The moment we start thinking it's someone else is the moment that we've lost that battle. Because my friends, we collectively, our human predilection is to do that very thing that the dragon wants us to do, to turn us against each other, to follow the leaders of the age, who though may be very charismatic and who promise us all sorts of things to liberate us from our problems, the reality is that we are all stuck together. The number of the beast is the embodiment of our fallen institutions, of our fallen structures, of our own fallenness in our hearts. See, the battle that's being fought between St. Michael and the dragon is a battle that's fought in the hearts and minds of us all individually, in the hearts and minds of our culture, our society. It's a battle that is always being fought. It's a battle that we sometimes will lose as we give ground to those spiritual forces that would pull us away from the love of God. But, did you catch, did you notice, that the dragon says he doesn't have much time. He knows that the war has been lost. His defeat is assured. All he's trying to do is to stir up as much problem as he can until that day when he is finally cast down. So my friends, are the question for us as we approach the holiest day, or the holy day of our celebration of the nativity of Jesus, the reason for the season, are we willing, like the martyrs, to profess our faith in this king who comes to us as a slaughtered lamb, as a helpless infant? Do we see in this lamb, do we see in this child, the one who has destroyed the dragon, the one who will not allow him to have the victory? We may lose the battles, yes. The battles in our own hearts and minds, the battles in our own culture and society. But we should, like the martyrs, be a people that insist on the righteousness and the holiness of the Lamb, that the people that flee to the altar for our protection. 
Because as we've seen in Revelation, even though the world may look like it's going to hell around us, we can still find solace in the one who promises us his protection. He doesn't promise us an absence of suffering, but he promises us that we can trust in him, that the battle has been won, that the war has been won. So let us follow this lamb, this shepherd, as he leads us to his earthly home, as he came to be with us, as one of us, for us. Thanks be to God.